think the first official sermon I preached was when I was 17. The topic was the prodigal son. The content was iffy, but I felt okay at the end. Uh, I can count on one hand how many times I finished a sermon and felt great. Mostly I just feel okay. And that day was no different. But at the end, a man in my church came up and he said with a real sense of seriousness, I believe God is going to use you to do something great one day. He could not have chosen a better way to encourage me because that was exactly what I wanted to happen. I wanted God to do something great with my life. I wanted to make my life count for the greatest name that there was. And he was saying that that was going to happen. I heard that consistently in my early 20s. God is going to do something great with your life one day. But as I transitioned to my mid-20s and into my late 20s, I kept wondering when one day was going to come. Because by every perceivable metric, God was not doing something great with my life. In fact, he was doing just very average things with my life. Then I got a phone call from a pastor in the Midwest, said that he was hosting a big youth conference and he was so excited about it and he believed that God was going to do something great there. And he said, I've heard about you and will you come and be our keynote speaker for this conference? I couldn't say yes fast enough because I believe that this was it. This was going to be the beginning of what all of that encouragement in my late teens and early 20s was talking about. This was going to be the breaking point and an avalanche of God's work through my life was going to happen, all beginning with this conference in the Midwest. So I flew to an airport at a major city and I had a two and a half hour drive from the airport to where the conference was being held. And I prayed almost the entire way and I went over my message and tried to fine tune all the points because if God was going to do something great, then I wanted to be at my very best. I wanted to make the best offering that I possibly could. I'm following my phone for directions. The phone says I'm arriving at the destination. I look up, it's the biggest church building that I have ever seen. I get into the parking lot. The pastor meets me in the parking lot. He's excited. I'm excited about what's going to happen for the weekend. He says, let's go in. I start heading towards the big giant church building. He says, no, it's not in there. It's over here in the gym area. I thought, well, that makes uh, sense. You know, maybe this auditorium is kind of old school and this is a conference for teenagers. And so they want to use the gym because they can manipulate the environment, make it a little bit more teen friendly. And so we head into the gym, walk into the gym, biggest church gym I've ever seen. Huge. But there's no stage, there are no chairs, there's no sound, there's no lights, there's no band rehearsing, just an empty gym. And he shows me the room where the conference is going to be held. Many of you have a living room bigger than this room. About 30 chairs in the room. By the end of the conference, there were about 10 students sitting in those 30 chairs. To be honest, I had a great time. When there are only 10 students, you really get to know those 10 students and they were awesome. They were fun. They loved Jesus. They were excited to be there. I really enjoyed hanging out with that pastor. He was a great guy. And God was doing some really neat things in and through him there. Had an awesome time. But I got back in my rental car to drive the two and a half hours back to the airport. It was just God and I. And we had some words. I had been told that God was going to do something great with my life. But it seemed like all he was doing with my life was very small and felt very unimportant. And I felt forgotten. 
If you've followed Jesus for more than a year, then you know what it's like to feel forgotten by God. To feel overlooked, set aside, while others receive the very things that you were hoping to receive. If King David were here, the ancient king of Israel, he would raise his hand and say, I know what it's like to feel forgotten. David had an incredible beginning. You talk about someone telling you that God is gonna do something great with your life. That's how David's story starts. He was a shepherd out in the field and the prophet Samuel came and anointed him to be the future king of Israel, which was unbelievable because his dad was a shepherd too. His dad was not a king. He was not anywhere close to being in line to be a future king, but God saw him and set him apart and anointed him for that future job. From there, he was promoted from shepherd to be a musician in the king's court. From being a musician, he was promoted to be the armor bearer of the king, which was like being one of the king's executive assistants. It was from there that he killed Goliath. After he killed Goliath, he became best friends with the king's son, the prince. From there, he was promoted to be the general of Israel's army, and he achieved victory after victory after victory. But it was in that moment that King Saul became jealous. Scripture says that he kept his eye on David from that time. And King Saul spent the rest of his life trying to kill David. For two chapters, David receives nothing but promotions. And for 13 chapters, he receives nothing but death threats. Legendary beginning, devastating middle. And it was from that middle that he wrote Psalm 13, feeling forgotten by God. What should I do when I feel forgotten by God? There are three things that I want you to write down and remember in your listening guide. Number one, I should be honest. I will be honest. Psalm 13, verse one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David says, how long, God, are you going to forget me? How long are you gonna hide your face from me? There was a season when my kids were younger. Every day when I got home from work, they wanted to play hide and seek. Every day. You think you must be exaggerating. Every day. (laughs) And you know what it's like to work hard, Work is hard. You could be doing your dream job. Work is still hard. Then I would sit in traffic on my way home. And when you get home, all you want to do is sit on the couch, turn on the television, and think about nothing. But when you have kids, you don't get to do that. For 20 plus years, you don't get to do that. So they would greet me at the door with, let's play hide and seek. So I want to be a good dad, feel obligated to be a good dad. Also, Amanda has been with them all day. And so I want to be a good husband. And so I played hide and seek. And here's what I learned. I learned that if I just volunteered to hide first, I could hide in a way where they would not find me and I could get both. I could be a great dad and I could rest. But after a while, they would catch on. They knew that I wasn't actually playing the game, that I was hiding intentionally. I would guess half of us today would say, I feel like God is hiding intentionally from me. I know that he's out there, 
I know because maybe I've experienced it before. I know because I hear other people talk about it. I know that he's out there, but he's hiding from me. This is what David is saying. Then he says, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? David's saying, God, this is supposed to be a two-way relationship, a back and forth conversation, but this is just one-sided. It's me asking, it's me praying, and you're not responding with anything. So when I need to hear your voice, all I hear is my own voice. And I'm tired of hearing my own voice. How long do I have to take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David says, I'm not just sad at night when it gets dark and I'm alone. I'm sad during the day when I could be distracted by many other things. And how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's the salt in the wounds of being forgotten by God. Because when we feel forgotten, it looks like everyone else is being remembered. When we can't sell our home, it's a seller's market for every friend that we have. When we can't find our spouse, everyone else is inviting us to their weddings. When our marriage won't resolve, everyone else is thriving. How long will my enemy be exalted over me, David says. Just moments before Jesus was arrested, he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, hours before he was crucified. And what is he doing in the garden? He's being honest. Scripture describes it as him being in agony, being deeply disturbed. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. But if we're honest with God, about feeling forgotten, won't God be mad at us? That's the invisible fear about being honest. We're afraid if we're too honest, then he'll punish us for our honesty. But not if we follow it up with what David did. When I feel forgotten by God, I will be honest, but I will also make my plea. He says in verse three, consider and answer me, O God. O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is honest, but then he makes his request. He says, God, will you do two things for me? Will you remember me? And will you encourage me? He says, consider me, God. Remember me. Will you turn your face towards me if you've been hiding from me? Will you come out from hiding? We reveal yourself, consider me, remember me and encourage me. He says, my eyes, the light in my eyes is going dim. He says, I don't know if I can make it anymore. I'm, I'm at the, my, my last breath. I'm at the end of my rope. Discouragement doesn't begin to describe how I feel. God, will you encourage me? Because if you don't encourage me, then I'm not gonna make it. I'm gonna quit. And if I quit, then my enemies, they're gonna say that you didn't protect me. They didn't vindicate me, that you weren't really who I believed that you had been. They're gonna rejoice over me. See, there is a complaining that leads to faith-filled prayers that pleases God. It is okay to complain to God as long as those complaints stir you to pray. But there is a complaining that leads to distrust and distrust and unbelief lead to God's discipline. 
God's people Israel were slaves in Egypt for a very long time. And through Moses, God rescued them miraculously out of slavery with sign and wonder. He promised to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, rich, good, everything that they could possibly imagine. But he took them the long way. That's usually how God takes us the long way. If you're here today because you think that God is a shortcut, let me tell you, he's not. He usually takes you the long way around. And he was with Israel. Took them the long way around to the promised land. But even in the desert wilderness, he provided for them with sign and wonder after sign and wonder. They get to the edge of the promised land. All of these years have been leading up to this moment where they take possession of the thing that God had set aside for them. So they send in spies to the land just to get the lay of the land, just to know what they have in front of them. 10 of the spies come back and they say, we're dead. We're in trouble. These people, they're humongous. In fact, we feel like little grasshoppers compared to them. And they live in these fortified cities. There's no way that we're going to be able to take this land. Two of the spies said, those are all true. These people are huge and they live in well-fortified cities. But don't forget, we have God on our side. God is the one who rescued us from slavery. God is the one who has provided for us out in the wilderness. God is the one who's brought us to this moment. And God is the one who will bring us in. And here's how the people respond in Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. When we feel forgotten by God, this is the choice that we have to make. Will our complaints lead us to faith or will our complaints lead us to unbelief? Because if it leads us the way of Israel, we will experience God's discipline. They said, God, we understand that you've protected us from slavery and you've protected us from starvation and dehydration out in the wilderness. You've given us everything that we need, but we don't think that you can protect us from these people in this new land that you've brought us to. So we want to volunteer to go back and be slaves. We'll pack all up our bags. We'll get our wives and our children and we'll go be slaves again. See, that's the thing about feeling forgotten. All that we can imagine is worst case scenario. They couldn't imagine a scenario in which they would be victorious, in which they would possess the land that God had promised them. So they complained and their complaints led them to unbelief and their unbelief led them to God's discipline. He turned them around, led them back out into the wilderness and every adult who stood at the edge of the promised land and refused to go in died out in the wilderness. It was their children who inherited that land. So it is okay to complain to God He welcomes it as long as it stirs you towards faith and not distrust. But we have to make our plea. Plea is short for plead. Our children know how to plead. If you're a parent, you understand probably this summer they've woken up every day and they've asked you for the same thing day after day after day after day. In our home, they've asked to go to Splashtown every day of the summer. So Amanda took them on Thursday. Other times they just fish. Uh, Fishing for a child 
It's just when they throw in a request. They're not like totally committed to it. It's just like casting a net out and seeing what comes back. So you ask them to help with some of the chores and they agree because they understand this is what I need to do. I don't pay for anything in this house. And so taking out the trash is the least that I can do for this family. And so Jackson will walk over to the trash can and say, hey, will you give me $5 for this? He doesn't really mean it. He doesn't care if I say yes or no. He's just fishing. And I find myself going, wait, should I give him $5 for that? I mean, maybe, no, 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 I shouldn't. Like, do you have a job? No, okay, this is your job. This is for free, Food is your payment. He just fishes. If we feel forgotten by God today, what Psalm 13, in fact, the rest of the Psalms would tell us, if you wanna be remembered, you're gonna have to plead. If you want God to suddenly reveal himself in the season where you feel like he's been hiding, you can't just go and fish half-heartedly. Hey, I'm just gonna throw this request out there, see what happens. Maybe God will answer it. Maybe he won't answer it. If he doesn't, then I'll just trust in my job or I'll just trust in my family or I'll just trust in the American dream and the American way. If you want to be remembered, you're going to have to plead. Remember what Psalm 63 said two weeks ago. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I will seek you. There has to be intensity to it. If we're learning one thing from the Psalms, it's that half-hearted prayers are not effective. You're gonna have to plead. I'll be honest, I will make my plea, and finally, I will resolve to believe. I will resolve to believe. We're living in this societal moment where my honesty equals the truth. Whatever I honestly feel, that's the truth. The way that I feel is the way that it is. You guys have probably not heard of this thing, fake news. Anybody? No? No, fake news is everywhere. Um, I'd never heard this term before, fake news, so I'd curious person I wanted to know is it fake news was it just invented like in the last year because it's very present apparently turns out fake news is very old turns out fake news bipartisan issue Republicans believe in fake news Democrats believe in fake news independents believe in fake news fake news is not a modern development it's been around for a long time because fake news essentially is I'm going to believe what I want to believe and I'm gonna disbelieve anything that I don't want to believe. That thinking is everywhere. Everywhere in this room. And it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to say, I'm only gonna believe the things that I already believe and I'm gonna reject anything else. I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield is the third largest city in Missouri. And yet there is very little diversity in Springfield, Missouri. In fact, there are very few black people, which I always found odd because St. Louis, very diverse. Kansas City, very diverse. Springfield, no diversity. So I did a little research about why that might be. I found out that in 1906, there were three black men who were accused of sexual assault, uh, sexually assaulting a white woman So they immediately threw them into jail. Word began to spread what obviously in 1906 was a pretty small town. 
Turns out they didn't do it. They worked in a store together and the store owner came who happened to be white and said, these men didn't do this. They were with me, they were working. They couldn't have done it. So they released them, but it didn't matter. There was just another accusation made. Oh, they had stolen something. So they rearrested them. And by that time, time, the town people, primarily white, said, we're just gonna believe what we wanna believe. And they broke into the jail and they lynched these men. And most of the African-Americans living in Springfield, Missouri at the time left. And very few have come back all of these years later. It's a dangerous thing to say my honesty is the truth. The way I honestly feel is the whole truth. Now, what is real is that the way you feel is the way you feel. And it is a good thing to express that. But just because it's the way that we feel, it's the truth that we see, doesn't mean it's the whole truth. And David knows this. David knows that he feels forgotten, that's real. David knows that he needs God to intervene, that's real. But look at what David also knows. Verse five, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So David says these things right after he's made his plea. So there's not been time. David didn't wait three months, six months, three years in between verse number uh, four and verse number five. He was honest. He made his plea, but he said, I'm gonna resolve to believe because I know these things. And look at these verbs. I have trusted, I will rejoice and I will sing to the Lord. So we need to resolve to believe when we feel forgotten. And why should we have that resolve? Number one, because we are loved with a steadfast love. That's what David says. I've trusted in your steadfast love. God has a persevering passion for you. It may be true that right now you look around in your life and say, I don't see any signs of God's love. My life is going awful right now. I see very, very few signs that I am steadfastly loved by God. So in that moment, we look to the sign of all signs. We look to the cross because the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter five, that God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you wanna see the steadfast love of God in your life, you may have to look beyond your life. You may have to look to the life of the son of God offered for you and offered for me on the cross. So we resolve to believe because God loves us. We resolve to believe because God has saved us. David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. When Jesus was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 12, he says, my soul is sorrowful, sorrowful even unto death. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He says, but for this hour, I've come. Jesus gets to the last 10 meters of his race and it's gonna be a daunting and devastating 10 meters. He's staring down the barrel of the cross for your sin and for my sin, the innocent son of God stepping in on our behalf. And he sees that last 10 meters and he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. But what am I gonna say? God save me from this moment. It's for this very moment that I've come. 
See, when Jesus was being honest, what did he look to? He looked to what he knew to be true, that God had sent him to us to save us. So when we're being honest, we should look to that exact moment that Jesus was given to us to save us. And whatever else may be true about our life, whatever else looks to be true, what we definitely know to be true is that God has saved us in Christ because he loves us. And because he saved us, we have eternal life. Because he saved us, we receive the Holy Spirit. Because he saved us, we have forgiveness for our sin. So we resolved to believe. And we resolved to believe because God is good. That's how David finishes this psalm. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He says, I'm gonna sing to God. God has yet to answer my plea because I just prayed it 30 seconds ago, but I'm gonna go ahead and end this psalm with a song because God has been good. And isn't that what we're asking when we feel forgotten? God, are you good? Are you good? I can see your goodness in the lives of other people. I can especially see your goodness in the lives of people that I don't like, honestly. But David knows he can look back into his own story and see God's goodness. Even though he feels forgotten right now, he can think back to when he was tending sheep and somebody came and got him, said, hey, the prophet Samuel is here and he was anointed to be the future king. He was a nobody. He could look back to that moment when he picked up those stones, started slinging one of them to Goliath and Goliath instantly dies. A giant happened to get hit in the head with a rock fell down, it's a little unbelievable, except for the miraculous power of God. And David could look back to that and see God's goodness. Even though he's being pursued by King Saul at this very moment that he's praying this prayer, Saul is yet to catch him. He evades him at every turn because of the goodness of God. And if you and I, if we slow down and we look, we will be able to trace the goodness of God in our lives. It may seem distant and blurry, but it's there. And we can look ahead to see the goodness of God. We can look ahead to eternal life. We can look ahead to the kingdom of God that's here and is ever coming. We'll sing because of the goodness of God and we will resolve to believe. I don't remember every word that I prayed in that two and a half hour trip back to the airport. I remember it was honest and there were lots of moments of silence because I felt forgotten. But if I could go back and do things over again, I'm glad that they happened the way that they did. I'm glad that there weren't a thousand teenagers waiting for me in that church because of the seeds of what would eventually become Bayou City Fellowship were stirring in that two and a half hour drive. And had that conference been everything that I wanted it to be, I don't know that I'm standing here today. See, that's the thing about feeling forgotten is we're not actually forgotten. forgotten. We're just waiting. And the waiting is always longer and it's always harder than we imagined it would be. But we're waiting for something. And when he's ready and when you're ready, you won't be waiting anymore. So when we have these moments of feeling forgotten. We'll be honest and we'll make our pleas and we'll resolve to believe because we're loved by God and because he saved us and because he's good.